Welcome to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. I am Dr. John, the guide for your heroic journey towards greater health, success, and most importantly, happiness. And now, on with the show. Hey everybody, this is Dr. John back with the latest episode of the Evolved Caveman. And I gotta say, I'm really psyched to have with me today, Allison Pillow. And Allison is a dynamic fitness trainer and energy coach. We're gonna find out what that is. Specializing in rapid permanent change through corrective exercise, metabolic nutrition, and energetic alignment. Through Allison's signature mix of humor, entertainment, and authenticity, her podcast, Integrate Yourself, has inspired thousands to approach their health and wellness in a whole new way. She is also the best-selling author of Finally Thriving. And you can find out more about that book at finallythrivingbook.com. And today, one of the reasons I'm excited about this is we're talking about self-care. So what the hell is self-care and why does it matter? Why do we beat ourselves up for not finding the time to exercise? Or we work out so hard that we come home in pain and like joint and back pain, not the good kind of muscle pain. (laughs) We struggle with diet, stress, insomnia, and that kind of health and wellness isn't relaxing. It's not joyful. And it definitely doesn't feel like self-care. So today we're going to learn how true self-care actually helps your body regenerate and recover. Allison, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dr. John. It's, It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here. So Tell me your story. How did you come to write the book? How did you get interested in this whole area? Yes. So I have a background in holistic wellness and holistic uh, fitness and nutrition and lifestyle training. And so I've been our coaching and I've been doing that for years. Um, I started out as a gymnast uh, from the age of five until about 22. I did it in college as well. Wow. And so I, I did, you know, I competed for most of my youth. Uh, and, and so I learned a lot about the body, about the potential of the body and really tested that out for myself as far as, you know, what my body could do. And it was an amazing time. And I learned my, I learned discipline through that. I learned what consistency can bring you to and persistence and, and the art of that and as an athlete. And so that was amazing. Um, as I got into my early 20s, I had a somewhat crisis of self because I, I stopped doing gymnastics, which I all, it was really all I had known up to that point. And, and in a way, I wasn't prepared for the identity shift that I, was, that I went through. So I lost that part of myself that I identified heavily with. And then I was like, who am I? So... It was a little bit of, it was a little bit of a, hopefully I can cuss a little bit on your show. Can oh, I please. Say shit yeah. show? It was oh, a little bit of a shit oh, show. Oh, shit. See, that's tame. That's like light. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and you know, my, so my early twenties, my twenties really were, you know, it wasn't that fun for me. So, uh, because I was, and I didn't really realize at the time what was happening. Um, but what's well, interesting I, if I can jump in there yeah, for a yeah, second. Sure, sure. I, it's such a classic story where you, I, I've talked with so many elite athletes where exact same story, right? You get you quit or resign or step away from the sport that you love, which was 80, 90, 95% of your identity. It gave you structure, it gave you everything up to that point, a social life, diet, whatever it was. And then you step away from it, and then intense self-doubt, depression, 
grieving, like all these things that come about from it. And, and I, I just want to drive that message home for any younger athletes out there that are listening that to me, that's a normal part of the process. It's not enjoyable, but it's expected. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It was um, definitely that for me. I did experience all of what you mentioned and uh, it just brought me into realizing that, oh my God, you know, I need to, I need to work on some stuff. What's going on here? It was very confusing time for me. So it wasn't really till later um, after I had kids um, in my early, my late twenties, early thirties, I started having these severe digestive issues and I, and I was like, well, you know, I'm used to doing everything physically um, and taking care of my body physically, but I had no idea how to bring in the food component, how to bring in the emotional component of health and those kinds of things. And so what I had to do from there was really learn the holistic principles to my health and wellness, those foundational principles and brought in uh, nutrition, uh, organic nutrition, and uh, and learned how to really get my digestion back on track because it was it was surprising how you know I would go to doctors and they would give me an antacid or something and it would never fix it and I I was like well oh my god this isn't you know I've got to find something that works because I can't function so I finally was able to heal myself through through just changing my nutrition. And that was amazing to me. That was one of the things that made me think, well, what else is there, you know, that I could learn about? So um, I went on a journey of learning about my emotional and, you know, intelligence and how I could navigate that. And over the years, um, as a, as a trainer, helping other people do this and, um, with their training them with fitness and nutrition, I was, I've been able to help them also navigate emotions because as if you have anybody listening, who's been an athlete or a trainer before, they know that when you move the body, you start to move emotions through, but as an athlete, I really had to suppress my emotions. So I wasn't mm-hmm. used to um, being able to navigate them because I had just pushed them away and um, was just kind of numbing them out and disassociating from them. Uh, because in, in my sport, you're not really allowed to show emotion. You have to really push through the pain, both physically, emotionally, mentally, and so to some extent when you know i got to this place in my life where i had been numbing out for so long i didn't even know how to feel at that point in my life right so i started seeing this in my clients too like as they would move these emotions would come through and i'd be like oh my gosh this is also you know i'm experiences experiencing this as well as i go through this journey of learning how to feel again right and um so you know it, it's amazing how much we store in our body to survive and so my book is called finally thriving and i realize that surviving sometimes the survival mode itself can be very subtle 
It's something that we don't always like, we think it's so obvious, like, yeah, you're breathing up through your chest. It's you're running from a lion, those kinds of responses. But there's also that subtleness of survival where we suppress our emotions or we have unresolved trauma from our childhood that keeps running this, the show subconsciously. So in order for us to be able to, uh, thrive, we, we want to resolve what, what is actually driving us from, from the uh, inside, right? So mm-hmm. what we also can call that book on the shelf that just stays up there until you take it down, right? So um, I go through a process um, in my book of connecting with the inner child like I was able to do. So I had to connect with... Uh, those parts of myself that didn't get, so I call it the inner child. Sometimes when we're kids, we don't get our needs met or we have some story that gets passed down to us or a projection from another adult. And then we take that to heart. And so we take that into our adulthood. Now, as an adult, you might look back on the story and say, well, that's you know, I, I can understand that now because it's, it, you know, from an adult perspective, it, you know, it, it, now, it, now it's understandable why my parents got divorced or why they acted that way. But if you have not resolved it, it can still be uh, an emotion or a feeling that's running in the background that's actually what's in charge of your actions, right? Or how you feel or how you respond to life. So this can be that subtle survival mode that we keep, we keep, that keeps running. So, um, so well, let, that, me, let me jump in there, Allison, yeah, yeah, if go I can. Ahead. Give, yeah, yeah. give us, like, give me um, an example of how you turn towards and soothe your own inner child. What does that look like? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I have an example in the book. Um, the way I started this was um, if something would come up for me in my life, um, like something that felt uncomfortable or if I got triggered or if some kind of emotion came up, uh, what I would do when I was younger is I would push it down. I would suppress it. I wouldn't feel it. But now, you know, I let it come up. I feel it. What does this feel like? And I asked myself, okay, what age does this feel like? You know, what, where did this come up for me? And um, I'll just, whatever number pops into my head first is the one I go with because I, you know, you want to just trust your intuition that what you, what's coming up for you is right. And the more that you practice that, the better and, more, and the easier it gets. So I'll go with that age and then I'll feel into it and I'll, 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 you know, feel into what that feeling or emotion, what, what did that remind me of in my childhood? And sometimes a memory will come up and, um, then I will have a, you know, a meditation where I am noticing, I am seeing that, for example, that seven-year-old right in front of me, she's standing there and, I will ask her, you know, what, what do you, you know, what would you, what, what are your need? What are you needing right now from me? You know, what are you needing? Like as, and you can think of yourself as the parent and your inner child as your child. 
And so you can have a conversation and and make it as simple as possible because your inner child's always going to be, the conversation's always going to be very simple. And the needs that your inner child needs is are always going to be simple as well because um, it's it usually comes down to a safety security thing, like something that we, happened in our youth that where we didn't feel safe. Um, and so what you can just do is a meditation where you're connecting with that age of yourself and you're just having a conversation. And, and it's like, like I said, a parent and a child conversation and asking them, what are they needing right now? Um, you know, and it could just be as simple as just to be held or just to be loved or just to feel safe, you know? And then you're acknowledging that and then you're giving that and now you are parenting your inner child so that they can play and so that you can be inspired by their creativity instead of them running the show in the background. So really the inner child is your subconscious, but the subconscious sometimes is a very abstract way to connect with yourself. So I like to use the inner child because of course we're going to be kind and loving to our inner children. Right. And, and so yeah. that's, that's the approach I take with yeah. it. I, I thank you for that. I, I love what you're saying. And I agree. I, I mean, I think of it and, and <laughs> I was going to make a joke about multiple personality. Like <laughs> how do you know you're not multiple personality when you're talking to different <laughs> aspects of yourself? Like I do. You don't. <laughs> um, but, um, but now I, at this point in my career, I think of us as having, you know, like maybe a five, six, seven year old, uh, I think of myself as having a five, six, seven-year-old John in my head and uh, maybe a 15-year-old kind of surly, defiant, angry teenage John. And then there's the functional adult John. And I remember one of those instances you were talking about where I didn't feel safe and secure when I was a kid. I got lost in a canyon in Arizona and I was all by myself. And I'll, I'll keep the story short, but I had to scramble up the side of a very steep canyon all by myself. I didn't even know where I was. And Luckily, I saw the house where we were staying. So I ran to the house and I was crying and panicked. And I told nobody about it because I felt like it was just as likely that my mom would be angry with me as she would to be nurturing because it was unpredictable. And so in my memory, I went back and my functional adult, my adult self met my six-year-old self at the top of the canyon and just scooped him up, gave him a big hug and said, I got you. You're safe. Take a deep breath. You're going to be fine. And, and so I think you're absolutely right. I think a lot of times it does have to do with safety and security. Absolutely. And you did what you, that was a wonderful demonstration of exactly what I'm talking about. You're giving yourself what you didn't get in that moment, right? You're meeting those needs, which you can meet at any point. It doesn't have well, to be. strange too. I felt yeah. like you feel a release. Yes. When you do it, you're like, oh, it's an exhale, an exhalation. It's it's relaxation. It's like, ah. Oh, exactly. Like because you were sag, holding right? that before, right? Yeah. It was in your nervous system. It's yeah. fascinating. And, and what happens is, I think what you're talking about is, you know, it's kind of like those accumulation of little traumas that accumulate into a big trauma and activate that sympathetic nervous system or the stress response. And so that means we're either always or easily in fight or flight or always or easily on lookout for threat. Exactly. And that's not a great way to go through life. No, no, it's not. No, that's not that, thriving. That's why I wrote the book. Yeah, because I, I just thought like, wow, there's so many aspects to this. 
and uh, also thriving for everybody's different as they relate to thriving. Like for one person, thriving might mean something different, you know? So that's why I wanted to give people an opportunity to do, to have their own individual journey through this and how it relates to their wellness. Because like you say, John is, is, Yes, it affects our sympathetic nervous system and our, you know these these things that we don't really place a lot of importance on. It, it they are running the show, right? Well, that's just it. We become automatons. We become yeah. mindless. We become creatures of. I, I think we are deeply creatures of habit, which sucks if we're being led by negative, destructive habits. If we can harness that power so that we're being led by positive pro-social habits that support us, that's fantastic. Absolutely. But that takes some work to get there, I would argue. Well, and the thing is, we, we're also led to believe that, and, and not to say that there's not, uh, I think you know, our habits, our healthy habits aren't important. Of course they are. But if we're just doing all this stuff externally and not really going within and addressing what's, you know, the root of what's happening, then you're, you're just, it's surface level healing. You know, it's not really getting to the, to the, like I said, the root of the cause, you know? But Allison, I can hear many of my listeners thinking at this moment, the Anne Lamott quote of my mind is like a scary neighborhood into which I'm afraid to go alone. Mm. And it's scary. So I don't want to go there. Oh, I totally understand that. And <laughs> I, I get it. I've been into, in, in some scary places um, and places I did not want to go. You know, I totally get that. The idea here behind what I'm sharing is more about not really um, digging up old trauma or ex- re-experiencing pain. Your inner child doesn't really want to do that and, and nor is it necessary. Okay. They've already experienced that pain. What we want to move toward is more so uh, the liberation aspect of it, right? So we want to liberate that inner child so that they can now experience joy and love and creativity and they can go and just play like a kid would want to do. You know, they don't really want to be burdened with all this adult stuff. Um, so it's about more of a liberation rather than digging up old trauma and re-experiencing the trauma. Um, Because sometimes people do get scared when you say inner child work, they're like, oh my God, no, I don't want to go there again. You know, of course you don't. Like, why would you? There's no reason for that. Um, But a lot of, a lot of people will have people go back and revisit the trauma. Um, And my, my approach is more, let's, let's liberate them. You know, because they, and then you take, then you take, I don't, I don't know if control is the right word, but you take the reins because now you mm-hmm. are parenting, you're learning how to parent yourself, which ultimately our parents were here to teach us how to parent ourselves because we become our own parent. We, we kind of take what they teach us and we take care of ourselves that way. You know, we become our own mother, we become our yeah. own father. Um, we learn how to nurture ourselves. We learn how to create healthy boundaries, you know, and take inspired action. But not all of us got the, those healthy relationships with our parents. Sometimes our parents didn't know 
how to parent us either. And, and so right. they did the best they could. So well, it's a, a lot of times yeah, if I ahead. can jump in there, sorry. To yeah, interrupt. Sure. Um, I see a lot of clients get stuck on or in anger at their parents because their parents didn't parent them in the way they felt they should have been parented or wanted yeah. to be parented, which I think is almost true for everybody out there to some extent. I, I know that, that we differ in degrees, <laughs> but one of the things I look at is sort of generational progression when people get stuck there and just, okay, well, how did your grandpa parent your father? Right. right. And how much did your father improve on how he was parented when he was parenting you? And I think that's kind of the best we can hope for is generational progression. And I think if you look at it at that light, oftentimes, but not always, you'll see that there was in fact progress. And while it's not fantastic parenting many times, it was better. And I think that can help loosen that anger sometimes. I, I agree. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's it's about compassion, right? So yes, you might go through a stage of anger, which might be necessary in the very beginning. Um, but then ultimately you do want to not have to be rejecting your parents all the time. You want to make peace with your parents and the job they did. Otherwise, you're just going to be in that mode of rejection and you'll yeah. never have that compassion, that love for, for, for them. And, and that's going to impede your relationship with yourself as well. So it's going to also affect that. So my advice is to find a way to make peace with that through compassion. I did, um, uh, family constellation work, which helped tremendously. Um, and that's what that that was my start to healing my relationship with my parents. And then I come full circle around to just so much love and appreciation for uh, their care for me, their love for me in, in their own yeah. way. You know, they weren't what perfect. they did and what they could offer. Exactly. And yeah. um, and so that's what that's what I think. If you can come to that place, then you can you know, anything's possible. And I think that's a huge shift to go from I'm angry and resentful at my parents for what they didn't give to me. Right. To full circle or 180 degrees to I'm appreciative and grateful to my parents for what they could offer to me. Yeah. And that changes everything. Absolutely. I mean, so they, they made their mistakes also made who you are. Right. So that's another part of it to look at. Yeah. Yeah. It's your whole story. So there's a few other things I want to get to, and I'm aware of time. We only got about 25 minutes. Oh yeah, sure. Sure. But there's a few things I want to touch on here. So I apologize for derailing you there. That's okay. I want to talk about this default state of mind. You, you mentioned that it's important to know your default state of mind before you try to improve things. How do we, how are we, how do we become aware of that default state of mind? How do we tap into that? Yeah. That, and what a, is it, I suppose? Yeah. So the default mode is what I call it in my book. And it's um, it's basically what you say to yourself 90% of the time. Like, mm-hmm. are you a half a full glass person or a half empty glass person? You know, so um, it's, and again, it's like, it, it's um, kind of switching, it's switching over to optimism in a very authentic way, right? A very genuine, genuine way, like that you're being honest with yourself about. Um, but the first step to that is to change the words that you say to yourself every day. Like 90% of the time, are you criticizing yourself? Are you judging yourself? Are you saying, saying to yourself, I shouldn't, wouldn't, couldn't, can't, don't want, you know, are you using a lot of these words? These are what we call conflict language because it 
for example, if you really want a lot of, you want to build wealth or abundance in your life, but you're saying, well, I can't do that because I shouldn't do that. Really making money is bad or whatever it is that you're, that you're associating that with, then that's going to be conflicting what you really want to create. So that kind of language is what we call conflict language, um, which you can actually simply change by just switching over to what we call architect language, which is um, I am, I get to, I want to. So now you're owning what you're creating through your language, through your thoughts. It sounds really simple, but if we can think of it like this, like what we what we have in our minds is our vision board for life. It's basically our ultimate creative tool. Then if we change our focus on what we want to move towards and we create direction and purpose with that and intention, then, then you're going to end up creating more of what you want instead of less of what you want. So people tend to focus more on what they don't want and they talk about it a lot and it's, a, it, you know, they think about it a lot, but then when they do that, they're creating more of that. That's just simply what happens mm-hmm. uh, because that's where their focus is going. So um, if we can even just start to change w- how we talk to ourselves, that can be a huge first step there. Yeah. And it sounds like you were touching a little bit on realistic optimism in the beginning there, which I, I think is profoundly life-changing, just learning how to be, how to interpret sort of bad situations, bad outcomes, as well as positive situations and positive outcomes with an optimistic lens. And as long as it's not life-threatening or, or life or death, if it's high stakes, go ahead, be cautious, well, uh, be a little yeah. pessimistic. <laughs> you know, I'm having surgery. <laughs> I'm optimistic that my guy's not a quack. Well, you have to be optimistic in that too. I mean, like I, well, you don't have to, but it's nice to be that that way. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, but do your research first. Oh yeah. You've got it. Okay. So yeah, you definitely have to, to be um, mindful of it. Right. And, and go and make an informed decision. That's important too. Right. We don't want to just go into each situation situation like, Oh, it's all going to work out. You know, of course you have to take the action steps and, and take the responsibility and, uh, to, to, um, be fully accountable in each situation that you, that you take part in. So that's definitely, that's definitely part of it. But what, you know, um, I guess the reason I put that in there too, is I wanted people just to reflect on how optimistic they're experiencing their lives and as opposed to negative, negatively. So, And that's important, you know, it's, it it is a way we can train ourselves, you know, we can train our brain to start thinking more openly. It's really just opening yourself up to more possibilities is really what it Mm -hmm. comes down to. But we tend to close ourselves off and limit ourselves when we feel like we we have a low sense of self-worth or we have low confidence in ourselves. So we're just trying to take ourselves off the hook. And so we create all these, you know, excuses or limitations so that we don't have to show up for ourselves. So that's how I see it. it. Like this is the first step for you to start training your brain to be more open to more of what you want to create. Yeah. And, and I agree with what you're saying. It, it strikes me also though, that, you know, that you describe it as the default state of mind. I just think of it as kind of the thought stream of an untrained mind. Yeah. And it, 
it makes me think that there's a level that we might have to work on first before that, which is self-awareness. And, yeah. you know, Tasha Urich's doing some interesting work around this where 95% of us will self-report that we are highly self-aware, but when we did, when we drill down into it, it turns out to be only about 10 to 15%. And so I think a lot of us say, well, of course I'm self-aware. Why wouldn't I be? I know everything about myself. Who's a better expert than me on me. And I think that many of us don't understand why we do what we do. And we don't have, we have very little awareness of the thoughts that go through our heads and definitely of the emotions that go through our bodies. Absolutely. You know, and and the way I think of self-awareness is, is more less knowing everything about yourself and everybody else. It's more of not knowing and being okay with that and trusting. It's more of just being open. It's like opening yourself up to that. Well, like what I call in my book, childlike curiosity. So being curious, being aware, just being aware is noticing what you didn't notice before, right? What are you seeing now that you didn't see before? So that's that's what we're stepping into. And that that then you can start noticing more synchronicities in your life too. Yeah. So all those you know, curiosity is a big deal. Yeah. Um, choose, and that's that's simply a decision to choose yeah. to be more curious. And, and it's that's a game changer as well. So let me um, let me move on because I want to get to. I think this is a really important topic, and and you urge readers to get clear on their values. So why are values important, and how do you suggest getting clear on values? Yeah, values are very foundational, and you know we can get pulled in all kinds of directions, especially you know in current times. Um with beliefs, with other people's values. Um, And as it relates to our health, it's very important to know what you value as opposed to other people. It doesn't matter what other people value. It's, it matters mostly what you value. And then you're differentiating that also between what your parents valued, which you might have different values. You might have similar values, but again, it's just bringing that awareness piece to that part and asking yourself, well, what are my values? Because many people don't even know this, right? And so maybe you can create some values with this exercise as well. But I always have my clients uh, write three to five values for themselves and then put them up where they can see them um, so that they are reminded by those values. Because you know, until you make a change in your life, a healthy lifestyle change, and you really get that down to where you don't even have to think about it anymore. You may have to remind yourself of that for a little bit, you know, like this is a value yeah. that I want to start taking on here. So let me remind myself. Another value you could have would be a less tangible uh, value than say like an organic, like I only eat organic food. You know, I love eating organic food. That could be a value, but also a value could be, I am now going to be, um, more honest with myself and others about where I stand on things and, and just about what's, what I'm okay with, what I'm not okay with, you know, um, or whatever it is, you know, you're just gonna, you're going to bring honesty in as a value or integrity. Those kinds of things can also be, um, values or, um, consistency 
inspired action. So whatever it is you feel like, you know, it could be something you already value. It could be something you want to take on as a new value too. So just becoming aware of that is foundational because what that does is it sets the stage for everything you do in your life, the people you hang around, um, the choices you make, how you prioritize your time. Um, it is all going to relate to your personal values. Yeah. And I think, I mean, values to me are a big deal. And I think, I think of them as kind of the guardrails for our behavior. And I think they come most into play at decision points in our lives or at those moments when the emotional mind is trying to come out in that third of a second before it takes over from your rational mind. Yes. And I, I like the idea and I'm, I'm always trying to learn more about values because they're vague and kind of, you know, difficult to pin down sometimes. So I like the idea of, you know, coming up with your top two or three values and then working to operationalize them. Yes. So, you know, what does it look like if this value, if I'm living by this value, what does it look like when I'm not living by this value? So for an example, let's say I value family really highly. So maybe operationalizing it means that I don't stay for drinks with the single woman that I'm working with after yeah. work. Yeah. Um, and how do I know when I'm not living by it? Like, well, if I'm golfing 18 holes every Saturday and Sunday after working full time Monday through Friday, that's probably not me really prioritizing family. You know, something like that, I think is a really good exercise. Absolutely. That's a great, those are great examples. And, you know, also, you know, differentiating, like prioritizing self, like how can I fit myself in there mm-hmm. and my family? Like maybe just seeing, you know, like where you can uh, prioritize those things as well. Like what, which, how can I prioritize this value in my life and, and, you know, on down the list and um, yeah, go ahead. Well, one of the, one of the things that I see, I mean, I see with a lot of businessmen that I work with is if I'm, if one of my top values is family, then I'm going to put my phone away while I'm playing with my two-year-old. Yeah. And I'm going to stop thinking about business and I'm going to be as present as I can for as long as I can with them. Because, you know, I I like the idea that time and attention are the currency of relationship. And, And a lot of times we're playing with our children and yet we're not really present. We're not really there when we're there. Um, and so, and just another way to, to operationalize that. Yeah. I love that. That that's, um, that's such a great point. Many times it's hard for people to even be present with both with other people and themselves. And that's a training within itself. Mm -hmm. So I, I recommend prioritizing time with yourself, start to learn how to be with yourself without doing other things, thinking about other stuff. Um, just noticing small things that you didn't notice before. And, but the, really it all goes back to the trauma, the resolving trauma, because if we still have that unresolved trauma going on in the background, it's really hard to be present with other people because we're always thinking about other things or we're trying to, you know, uh, externalize it, you know, through busyness and all of that. Um, So that might be one thing to, reflect back on, uh, if you're having a hard time being present. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there's one other area that I want to touch on that this fascinates me as well. One of the things you advise the readers in the book on is learning how to receive. Yes. So 
I, I have an idea and inkling what that means, but give us more <laughs> info on that. So generally speaking, it, you know, receiving is more of the feminine, right? So you and I talked mm-hmm. a little bit before and Masculine versus feminine. Yeah. Yeah. And how feminine is, you, you don't really want to tell most guys be more feminine because like, they're not going to want to do that. Right. Cause that's not, that seems to be, um, negative, you know, for, we're not for socialized men. in that direction. Yet. Yeah. It's yeah. Kind of discouraged. Which but I do a, think what yeah. we're trying to do ultimately is balance our masculine and feminine sides. That's right. That's right. I just right. don't I see, see that, that out happening. loud very often because yeah. you know, men are like, oh, fuck that. They don't have a feminine. What, what are you talking about? I don't have yeah, a feminine. I'm not feminine. No but pussy. all people have feminine. They have feminine and masculine. Women have masculine yeah. too. And so um, I tend to think of the giving and receiving. They go hand in hand. They need each other to exist. And uh, they're also a reflection of the feminine and the masculine. So receiving... Uh, you have to know how to receive in order to give unconditionally. So most men, especially like they're giving, 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 they're supporting, they're holding, they're, you know, when are they able to receive? <laughs> you know, it's like there has to be that time, right? When they can do that. Um, same with women. It's the same deal. Like we're in a society where we're, we all are, are about doing, we're all about giving, but rarely do we learn how to really receive. So um, in order for you to give in an inspired way, in a way that feels good for you, where you don't feel like you need anything back from it, um, you have to learn how to receive first because then you'll know what it's like to receive when you give to someone, right? So um, plus it's it's really nice to receive so that you can nourish yourself. So we can do that through many different ways. It doesn't have to be just through a gift or, or um, you know, receiving something in a relationship from, from another person. It can be you just receiving your food. Well, it could be you receiving a nice glass of water, you know, or something that really feels good for your body. It could be, you just act, taking in nature, you know, a or compliment, a compliment. It could be yeah. sex. I mean, I, I've it seen men struggle sex. with all yeah, these, totally. right? Like yeah. just lay back and, and receive this sexual gift yes, from yes. You know, your partner. Well, that's and like, a great Oh, I can't do that. Like I, uh, what? Like, well, yeah. Like how do you feel? Uh, it, well, that's a great, that's actually a great example. Um, to, to, you know, reflect on is like, uh, where are you with that? Are you, are you really comfortable giving, but not receiving mm-hmm. or vice versa? You know, that's a, that's a great, that's a great. Is it reflection. out of balance? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, well, yeah. And, and the other thing I see, I've seen with men over the years is compliments. We suck compliments. Yeah. at receiving compliments. Now, maybe it's not just men. I'm, you know, I target men. I, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, but yeah, I think everybody. it can be all of us, but <laughs> yeah. we come up with so many ways to discredit the sincerity of the compliment giver. Yeah. Oh, they're just blowing smoke up my ass. Ah, they don't really mean that. Ah, they don't know. Oh, they don't know me. You know, like all that stuff. And I think it, it makes us uncomfortable. Sometimes it can embarrass us, but it's such a struggle and such a, an excellent practice to work on taking a compliment in, believing it's sincere, believing that they see the positive in you better than you do in yourself and just accepting it into your heart and sitting with it for a few seconds. Yeah. That's a great practice right there. Absolutely. Yeah. 
it, it can start with anything really. I mean, even if someone gives you something, you don't like the gift or it's not a great gift, just receive it with grace. It's like, it's about how you receive it. Right. Let me ask you this. Oh, sorry to interrupt. So no, okay. uh, when have you ever been in a relationship and maybe this was early on where the person loved you a lot mm-hmm. and would do kind, thoughtful, nurturing, loving acts for you. And it was hard to receive them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's a reflection of the person's ability to receive too. When, you know, if it makes you feel uncomfortable. I think self-worth too, partly. Yeah. If I look back at my past. Well, I think for me too, I was always like as an athlete and some men may be able to, to um, uh, relate to this is I was really taught to be tough, you know, Mm -hmm. and so therefore, if you're really tough, you're not going to, you're not going to soften up to receive a compliment or something. Cause that's a softening, right? That's a feminine quality. Yeah. Um, and so you have to be open. You can't be resistant to receive anything in life, you know? Um, so that's, that's a part of it. It's like a softening. Like you can't be, it's not a tough thing. It's like a, yeah, it's a, it's more of just an allowing yeah. uh, energy, a surrender energy to be able to take a compliment. Um, yeah. yeah. And we're better at doing than being. And I, I yeah. think it's a part of being to soften, open up and receive. Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah. It's more yeah. passive in a way, but it's yes. not. That's, that and that's the, that's the, it's totally passive. Yeah. And it's, but it's very powerful. It's actually, again, you need the giving and the receiving. They, they work together And therefore you take yourself off the hook when you can do that receiving, when you can work on that as a practice, um, because then you don't have that heavy obligation to give, like you can actually give with no obligation. You can give unconditionally. Yeah. What a concept. Yeah. You can give without expectation of receiving something back. It's not tit for tat, which is a shitty way to live a relationship. (laughs) That's how we've been living up until now. Right. Yeah. I'm at a hundred. You're at 75. I'm winning. Uh It's all about competition. (laughs) Yeah. That's yeah. (laughs) And you as an athlete know about that. I do. And that's how How, I learned. Yeah. But how high did you, like, where did you, where did you uh, compete or where did you do gymnastics in college? I did it at Radford University. It was a division one school. They they no longer have the program, but I had um, I was there for three years, and then I decided I wanted to end on a good year, and I didn't finish out the last year. I transferred to Georgia State University for exercise science. So, um, yeah, I I was uh, in club gymnastics for a very long time. We did we were on a traveling team, and uh, we would travel every weekend to a different city. And then um, I ended up getting a, a scholarship at Radford University uh, for gymnastics there. Yeah, that's so, a big deal. Yeah. So congratulations. Are you familiar with Dan Millman? Yes, he's in my book, actually. <laughs> oh, you're kidding. Yeah, so Jory, <laughs> my fiance, and I went, yeah. to, uh, went to a retreat with him in Costa Rica. She's been on several oh, with him. Oh, wow. Um, I, yeah, for those that don't know, Dan Millman wrote uh, The Way of the Peaceful Warrior as well as 14, 15 other books. Um, some of which are just outstanding. Way of the Peaceful Warrior is outstanding. Um, yeah. But he used to be a gymnast at Cal and had a terrible uh, fracture in his lower leg. Yeah. And the doctor said he'd never walk again, let alone compete. And somehow he, you know, I think through blending West and East healing practices, he 
managed to compete one more time and I think took second at nationals off of the rings, which, you know, to land off the rings yeah. on a questionable leg and stick the landing is absurd. Uh, yeah, it, it was an amazing, an amazing uh, story. It's, and the man that, or the person or whoever, we're not sure what it is. Um, yeah. Socrates. Socrates. Or, yeah. He's, that was an amazing like connection there too. I think like, he yeah. said in his, he, he just wrote a most recent book that just came out a month or two ago. That's semi, I think it's auto, autobiographical. Okay. Where yeah. he says that Socrates is in truth pieces of him. Oh, pieces of himself, okay. That, that makes sense. Along the way. Yeah. Um, because people have asked him for years, who was Socrates? Who is that is guy? Real? Did you meet him? <laughs> the, you know, the guy at the old abandoned gas station. Yeah. And, oh yeah. I'm thrilled that you, you know him. He's, he's a great guy. Well, he I don't 70. know him personally, but I love the well, book no, in the him. movie. And I, um, and I actually, there's a chapter called the crumbling in my book about that. It relates to that story, yeah. the peaceful warrior. Yeah. So it, it's a, and it, so it uh-huh. was amazing at this retreat. He actually did a handstand on a folding chair. So his arms are oh, wow. uneven at the age of 70. What? Oh and I'm my like, gosh. I always struggled with handstands on the ground and I'm. That's amazing. <laughs> at any age. Well, I guess, you know, I, I, can, I still have my handstand. So I guess you never lose it. You know, it's, it's one sure of those it's... things you do a million of when you're yeah. in gymnastics. And so if that's the one thing that I can do, I guess that's pretty good, you know, but. <laughs> it's impressive to me. <laughs> But the fact that he could do it on a chair at 70, now that's even more yeah. impressive. Yeah. That's no, amazing. It was, it was an interesting retreat. It was, it was good stuff. Um, so let me ask you this. I'm aware of time. I know that you've got a hard stop here coming up. Um, is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have? Um, gosh, that's a, I've never been asked that question before. <laughs> um, you know, I, I would, uh, I don't know. Uh, can we can we touch upon the crumbling uh, chapter really please, quick with people? Please, that'd be okay. great if you've got yeah. time. Yeah, I've got time. Um, uh, yeah, so that that chapter was inspired by the last two years, two or three years here, two and a half, I guess, coming up on um, of our reality crumbling, you know, and like it, mm. the way that it happened with uh, Dan Millman uh, in the story, the piece warrior how his his reality of his really it comes it the crumbling is your identity right mm-hmm. how you see yourself um who you thought you were um what you thought you could do and all of these things and so those identities crumble and then we were left with thinking well who am i now this is a crisis of self and it's an opportunity, though, too, for us to go deeper into all those aspects we talked about today, but also um, to really reflect on what you want in your life, what you would like to create, how you would like to be, what you would like to feel. We're always going to have the choice of, of doing it that way. And so... Um, that was a sim that that chapter symbolized uh, what I went through as well in in many different phases of my life. But as a collective, I felt like we all had a very um, common experience of our realities changing during that time during the the pandemic. And um, 
I felt like, hey, this is a great opportunity for us to reflect on what is working, what isn't working in our lives and how we would like to change that and um, what, you know, magic and synchronicities could come from that if we just look at things a different way. And we could reflect on and more of what is working, you know, what we could move towards. So that was um, that was a, the idea behind that chapter. And, and Dan Dan's book really inspired me. Um, I was like, I remember I, I like to listen to audiobooks. So I was listening to the audiobook, and at the end, I was in the airplane listening to it, and I was just tears were just running down my face. I'm like, people are going to look at me like, what is she crying about? You know, but it was just so emotionally, it was, I was so emotional at the end of it. Cause I was just like, Oh my God, yes, this is, this is what we're here for. You know, um, it's amazing. It's amazing. You know, yeah. the opportunity, if we can just see it, um, and the experiences we could have are just, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, just to bring this full circle, mm -hmm. I think I can. So, one of the things that I tell elite athletes when they step away from the sport they love and they have that identity crisis because it's obviously a huge part of their life is imagine looking, imagine speaking to your younger self, the four-year-old self. And, and it could be, you know, maybe a four-year-old cousin, maybe a four-year-old daughter or son or whatever it is, but a, a young person. Mm -hmm. And if you ask them why they love you, the answers are going to be things like, because you're kind, because I trust you, because you're funny, because you spend time with me. They don't have anything to do with the sport you just left, right. nor does your identity. Right. You know, so I, I get that that's a big piece of you, but to understand that there's such a bigger, you are so much bigger than the sport that you were. Yeah. It's just something you did. It's not uh -huh. who you are. And that's what we're coming to realize is like, we're, we're connecting with that essence, that true energy of who we are, not what we do. And, but before, before we were connecting more of like, okay, what you do is who you are, but no, it's not, it's how you show up, right? The so energy that relationship, the table. that yeah. relationship with the inner child is bi-directional. I just realized. So you support them, let them know they're safe and secure. They can sometimes support exactly. you and say, Hey, look, I love you because of these values or these traits, not because of what you do to make money or because right. you're a professional soccer player. That's right. They will inspire you. They'll inspire your inner creativity. And, and my five-year-old was just like ready to go. She was like, let's go, let's do this. You know, she's ready to create and, and have fun and play. And so that was my inspiration for really starting this whole thing. It was my five-year-old. Well, Allison, yeah. I'm glad you started because it led you here into this conversation and I've greatly enjoyed it. Oh, me too. Thank you, John. This has been a, an honor. Thanks so much. Absolutely. and so much fun. Yeah. So once again, for the listeners, the book is Finally Thriving and you can find out more at finallythrivingbook.com. And Allison, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And for the rest of you who are listening, thank you so much for listening. Please remember to rate, review, share if you loved the conversation today. If you didn't love the conversation, you don't have to do a damn thing. That's it. This is Dr. John signing off. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for listening to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. If you like what you've heard, support us by subscribing, leaving reviews, and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. For the latest, most powerful tools to connect with like-minded men, join the Facebook group at The Evolved Caveman. Follow Dr. John on Instagram at The Evolved Caveman, all one word, or join the email list by visiting guidetoself.com. 